here we are on the weekend mm-hmm. when uh, I am uh, anticipating that France will win the World Cup. By the time most people listen to this podcast, I will either be uh, celebrating or in tears. Is it possible for them not to win? What would have to happen for them not to win? Cro- Croatia would have to upset. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I mean, we're talking about yeah. we're talking about injury. Or are we talking well, about? I mean, it's, is uh, it really possible for uh, Croatia? Here's the thing: Croatia has surprised everyone, and uh, they shouldn't have. But here's the thing: you know, the the, the story with Croatia, and I'll, I'll we'll get to movies in a minute so that I can get this out of my system. Um, I've got a very, very good friend in in Sweden who's Croatian and is just out of her mind with joy over this. It's the smallest country to make a World Cup final since 1930. Yeah. Okay. Really? I mean, Small yeah. in Uruguay. Yeah. It, it's, I guess it's, it is. Well, U- Uruguay w- in 1930 was when they made it. So. Oh, that is when they made it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it is, uh, it's the smallest country since Uruguay to make it. As an independent country, they got third place in 1998, their very, very first year in the tournament as an independent country. The Balkans have always fed a lot of really, really class players into the European leagues. You got a lot from Serbia and from Croatia and 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 Macedonia. They've always they've always they're, they're, that's always been a really very strong area for a certain kind of player. And uh, but it's never been they've never been the the Cristiano Ronaldo's. No. They've never been the Lionel Messi's. Right? They've never been those superstars. They're the other guys, the role players, yeah. the ones that just kind of hold it down in the midfield and make you look good. And suddenly they put 11 of those guys together on a team who all play for elite European teams. And we've never paid attention to these guys individually, but they have always been there making other people look good. Yeah. And now they just make each other look good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, 1998, that was a super strong team, and they've just been quietly sort of making, the, making inroads. But I think they, they played three overtime games in a row. Yeah. No one's ever done that and won the, won it all. Uh, France is just so talented, and they have such a great midfield, you know. And that uh, kid, with that, that, that little bouncy Mbappe. Mbappe, jeez. 19 Christ. years old. Never man. seen anybody move that is, fast. It's unbelievable, isn't you know? it? Yeah, I mean, the, the kid is. Because the thing of it is, he moves fast. He moves his body fast around the field, but yeah. then his body moves fast. His feet yeah. move fast. Everything. So even when he's standing still, he's it's still insane. moving faster than everyone there. He is. I, I, I'm going to say it right now. So many people have been called, you know, the new Pele, the new Pele, this, that, and the other thing. And there have been lots of superstars, man. I mean, you know, Maradona, as much as I hate him, yeah, <laughs> I, I know, he, 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 had, he had some skills. Look, Messi and, and Ronaldo and Neymar and, and you know, all the, all the other Brazilians, Romario and Bebeto and, you know, you've had, Germany had Kloza and, and you know, France had Zidane and, and Germany had Beckenbauer and Müller. And, I mean, there are tons of these guys. Mm-hmm. But this is the first time since Pele, that I have looked at somebody and I've thought that kid could transform the game in the same way as Pele. Yeah, he's not a Brazilian. He doesn't play that super skilled, you know, yeah. on the ball thing. But he's so blazing fast. That's the thing. He's faster than Pele. Oh, he's he's as fast as any player I've ever seen. Yeah, he is as fast as anybody. And and it comes. It, it just he guns it like lightning. Yeah. He's just once he's off to the races, he's off. Yeah, yeah. And you're done. Fast as he can possibly be, and kicks hard. And he's 19. Yeah, I know. I'm, so much poise and going to his first final. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I, I have sneakers uh, almost three times as old as him. He was not yet born when France won the World Cup in '98. Yeah, yeah I know. that's crazy to me. Makes me. All right. <sighs> anyway, all right. All right. So we? Mbappe, he's Mbappe. my boy. 
Love that kid. Um, I, f- I feel like Sunday's going to be really, really something special. Anyway, uh, also, you know, uh, on the uh, Cinegods page, please go. If you are on, if you're a member of the Digigods uh, group, please go over to Cinegods and and uh, like it so that you you also get a lot of stuff cross post between the two. We're going to get the uh, the Cinegods.com page uh, tweaked pretty soon. That's going to start rolling again. We you know we put a few things up now and again. Some Mark's going to be putting up some reviews soon. From, oh yeah. From uh, France and Mark yes. maybe going to Deauville the, and to covering some stuff from yeah. from Deauville for us. So that'll be fun. Uh, and Mark is in France right now, by the way. So he'll be there uh, if and when they win the World Cup and yeah. have a good old time. Uh, and I also posted uh, to the Synagogues page, and I think I put it on the Digigods page as well, that uh, Criterion in uh, later this year will be releasing a, in honor of Ingmar Bergman's 100th uh, anniversary birthday year, they're releasing a 39-film boxed set. Oh, wow. Basically everything Bergman ever did, uh, which is unbelievable, uh, just phenomenal. So I'm, I'm enormously elated about that. I'm thinking we may want to dedicate just a whole show, just talk about Bergman. <laughs> we could. Yeah. B- bring Peter. We should invite Peter. We should, shouldn't who we? Who is our film week yeah. colleague. Yeah. Who is, you know, I mean, a, an act, a deep, a deep yeah. expert. Yeah, for Bergman. sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That that would be a really fun thing to do. Uh, so anyway, I'm going to start off. I'm going to hit off some, some cult stuff really quickly. We got uh, an interesting collection of uh, cult movies, which we try to cover as often as we can. The uh, the Nikatsu Erotic Films Collection from uh, Impulse keeps putting out bizarre stuff, and it's good bizarre. Now, just so that everybody understands, Japan mm. has a very Jap exploitation films as as, and that's not a, a word that a lot of people are fond of, but that's what it's called. That's what they named. They it. called them Jap exploitation films. So if you have a problem with that word, take it up with the people that created it, not me. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the there is a very there are, there are a handful of countries that created a lot of exploitation films in the 1960s that all kind of interconnect with each other in the U.S., in Australia, in Japan, uh, predominantly, and then certainly in Italy to a slightly lesser degree, Some also in Spain, Jess Franco. You know, there are a lot, yeah. of, there were a lot of places around the world at the time that were, that were making these kinds of things, a few of them in France. Uh, and uh, in Japan, because the laws are so, so rigid about what you can and can't show in terms of erotica at this time, it's not like in Sweden where it was just, hey, <laughs> there we go. No, you couldn't do that in Japan. It's very, very, very conservative. So they found ways of getting around it that actually make it filthier than if they showed everything. Mm. Uh, so yeah. somehow... When you put that little fuzzy box there... It just, anyway, yeah. it just, it, it really is, it's kind of fascinating. And that carries into subsequent eras as well. So what we have here are from the 80s, which tends to be even more restrictive in many respects. One is nun story, uh, frustration in black. Now, we don't, we don't have video on this show. Tim, I'm going to ask you to describe the picture on the box. Well, it's, um, it could be a nun <laughs> if, if she had the entire outfit on yeah, but she rather doesn't. than just the habit. And she is wearing just the habit, so it's not she's, a nun. Yeah, she's got the she's got the, uh, the 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 head deal and panties, and that's pretty much. Yeah, it. that's pretty much it. Um, I'm saying that's not a nun. You no, know, not yeah. really. Yeah. So uh, honestly, it's 
you know, about it. It's it's like any of those nun nun exploitation yeah. movies. Well, which, it, it, look, uh, uh, convents and prisons. Yeah, you know that's where you want to. Yeah, in America we put them in prisons. Over there they put them in convents. Italy, Italy made a few of these as well, but the uh, anyway. There's this is this is deeply deeply offensive on a modern level in the Me Too era. You're not going to want to watch this. This is it, this has some violent stuff in it that is. Very, very disturbing. Yeah. But as an artifact of this particular kind of film in Japan, it's it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, White Rose Campus gets into the uh, the schoolgirl thing, which has always been very uh, very much a part of uh, the Japanese fetish culture. And uh, this one is really, really cruel. Uh, this is almost more like a like a roughie from the 1960s in the U.S. You you have these uh, the like a gang of cross dressing torture rapists who uh, hijack a, a a bus where these girls girls are going on a field trip and uh, the the ugly girls kind of get the worst of it uh, or the ones that they call ugly. It's really uh, it's very very exploitive as you would expect an exploitation film, and uh, it pushes the envelope more than I would have expected Japanese movies of this genre to do. So anyway, White Rose Campus and Nun Story, Frustration in Black, those are the two strictly for people who are uh, who understand this genre and have a uh, an interest in it. Yeah. Uh, a, uh, a Taste of Phobia is uh, a an anthology of, uh, of basically kind of exploitation horror films. Uh, it, this is from uh, um, exploitation Films. And uh, it's a total of 14 altogether. Uh, all of them deal with different fears, different phobias, specific, like, you know, there's there's phobia, which is a fear of hairs. I've never heard of that. Me either. Uh, but I can understand it. Yeah. You know, I've seen some, I've seen some, like, when I go, when I go running, every once in a while, there'll be a dude with some back hair. <laughs> I, I, it makes me want to gag, <laughs> you know? They, they're, it's almost like wings. Uh, so yeah, I can get fear kyatophobia. Uh, then there's like henophobia. Do you know what henophobia is? I can't even begin. Henophobia is a fear of young virgin girls. Well, that's ludicrous phobia. <laughs> that's just insane. <laughs> anyway, even young virgin girls are not afraid of young virgin girls. Yeah, here's 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 my favorite one. Are you ready for this? Um, and I and I'm gonna try to pronounce it correctly. Uh, Majiracophobia. Majiracophobia. Again, no. It's fear of cooking. You know, that's just crap. That's <laughs> bullshit. That's just a lazy dude. <laughs> that's, that's nothing wrong with that person. <laughs> anyway, so there's all these little films that deal with all these bizarre fears. Some are better than some, uh, than others. Some are just out, downright hilarious. They know they're, uh, they're yanking your chain, uh, but it's all it's all in good fun, and uh, it's not it's not bad. So you might want to check that out. That's from Art Exploitation. That's on a DVD. That is a taste of phobia, and uh, films from all over the world. Uh, this is one I did not particularly like. I don't think this is particularly good. This is also from Art Exploitation. Uh, but it's not really my thing, and uh, it's basically because it's German exploitation, and being half German, I just know the mentality too much, and it's a little bit too Kafka-esque, but, uh, and a little too gory. Nonetheless, uh, there, people will love that. If you like, you know, uh, Jalo films, you'll, you'll get all into this as well. It's called German Angst, and uh, this is uh, from three directors who do, who specialize in these really nasty German horror films, and uh, three separate films called Final Girl Make a Wish and uh, um, uh, Alrauna. 
it, it's it's nasty. It's gross. It's very much kind of in the saw vein. Yeah. Uh, like Final Girl is by by Jörg Butgerite is really. I just didn't need this, and I don't need this in my head. It's all you know, S and M and uh, and torture porn, and it's it's really nasty. But you know, some of you people out there, you're sick, and you get off on this stuff. So have at it. Uh, Spiderlings, Arachne in the UK is a trauma release that could be funnier, um, it, it, but it you know for what it is, it's still uh, it's trauma, it's still in the mix, and they they kind of shoot these things out uh, as fast as they can, and you know sometimes it's hit and miss. Uh, this one is about a couple of lesbians and and some punks and it's all about you know uh, this bizarre nightclub and there are people out there trying to kill people and somehow this all hangs together and and it, there's it has spiders in it I, it doesn't really work <laughs> it's just trying it's it's trying to be wild and weird and, mm. and woolly in that Lloyd Kaufman way and it it sort of does but you know it's not their best uh, from uh, Mondo Macabro, this is actually really, really, really cool. Uh, this is real vintage stuff. This is uh, Who Can Kill a Child uh, by Narciso Ibanez Serrador, who, with whom I am not familiar. But this is uh, classic 70s horror, Euro-style, Euro-horror from Spain, 1976, which has, uh, it, it, it overlaps a little bit with, with Italy at that time. The, the exploitation stuff in each country is, it, it, you know, they have their own sensibilities, but they're kind of sort of similar because a lot of people in each industry worked in the other. Uh, and uh, this one, but this one is very, very uniquely Spanish. It has a certain, uh, it has a certain Spanish flair to it. Uh, focuses on a couple of English tourists who are visiting the island of Almanzora, which is uh, just off of the, uh, the south of the Spanish coast. And um, when they get there, it's kind of like the Star Trek episode Miri. It's oh, yeah. all kids. Oh, yeah. I love that. Right? It's very creepy. It's like uh, Children of the Corn or uh, uh, what's, what's, the, what's the old black and white one? The uh, uh, Village of the Dam. Oh, Village of the Dam. Yeah. It's got the that white kind of hair. Yeah. It's got that kind of, kind of vibe to it. Um, and except these kids are just like they, they, they grin too much. It's like those creepy <laughs> smiles, right? It's like very Joker-like, the man, the man who laughed in, uh, in silence. Cinema. Anyway, uh, and uh, it, it's, this film was really, really creepy. It's more of a creep factor all the way through, but it's really quite good. Who can kill a child? And uh, it's, it's quite good. It's a, it's a good artifact of the period. And then the last one is from uh, the Something Weird and the AGFA library. AGFA is the uh, acronym that uh, stands for the oh gosh, what does it stand for now? It's it, it, ag, uh, the uh, genre, American Genre Film Archives. Ah, that's what it is. Mm. Ag, American Genre Film Archives, not the film stock. Yeah. But uh, this is the God Monster of Indian Flats, and this is also on Blu-ray. And uh, this is kind of a this is also really great 1970s era schlock made by a director named Frederick C. Hobbs in 1973. Never heard of Hobbs. But uh, it's pretty great. It really kind of uh, splits the difference between black exploitation, '70s monster movies, um, and a little bit of that Ray Harryhausen kind of stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah. A, maybe even a touch of Godzilla as well. It kind of sits in between all that stuff. It's 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 actually a lot of fun. So uh, and Fred, you know, Frederick C. Hobbs apparently was kind of a was a serious guy. It's a the whole the whole thing. It's a it's a sheep monster. I don't even want to tell you any more about the monster. It's it's quite funny. And uh, it's a very clever film. 
So it has some special features on here. This was made, this is made from a 4K scan of the only surviving 35 millimeter print. And it has some vintage uh, trailers on it as well, and even some uh, some extra shorts from the uh, something weird vaults. But the the monster itself is an absolute stone cold riot. You're going to love it. The God Monster of Indian Flats, 1973, Frederick C. Hobbs. That would on be digital today. That, but they they actually built stuff back then. They did. Uh, so funny. Uh, can I knock off a few of these? Yeah, by all means. Uh, 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 some uh, 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 gay and lesbian cinema. This uh, these three are from Breaking Glass Pictures. Interesting stuff. Play the Devil. Uh, directed by uh, Maria Govin. This one and Hooked, uh, directed by Max Emerson, have a little bit in common. So the first one, uh, Play the Devil, um, very interesting film. It's set in Trinidad and Tobago, and this is one of these uh, older older man meets younger uh, man about to, younger boy about to become a man sort of movies. Uh, he he sees this young man in the play. The young man is very very good in the play. He's just a business guy. Uh, and, and, you know, he sort of takes up with this kid. And, yes, there's, a, there's an attraction, but he's really trying to help this kid because he can see a talent in him, and he's showing him how to shape his life in such a way that he can be successful. Uh, and just as this kid is sort of uh, moving along and their relationship is developing, the kid's drug-addicted father shows up. Uh, so it's one of those, yeah. you know. Uh, and uh, and uh, and here, here is this young guy between these two grown men. One of them his actual father, the other one a sort of potential lover. It's a dynamic that's uh, you know ripe for all kinds of drama, as you might as you might uh, consider. And Maria handles it really beautifully. It's paced very nicely and just lovely, lovely, lovely uh, to look at. It's set in Trinidad and Tobago, used all, all kinds of uh, sort of traditional. Uh, ceremonies and things like that are, 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 are shot. It's just a beautiful little movie. Play the Devil. Uh, check that out if you get a chance. The other one is Hooked. Kind of the same thing. Um, an older man who's married and uh, still in the closet uh, has a young friend uh, who he's been running around with for a while. And they're very good friends and they do all kinds of stuff together. But that young guy, uh, like young guys sometimes do, uh, kind of gets out of control a little bit. So the older guy uh, you know, decides to try to figure out a way to uh, to save him from himself, so um, uh, he takes him from uh, New York to Miami, and, uh, and but you know that's that's not the best idea <laughs> to, uh, in in that particular situation. Nevertheless, it's another one of those movies uh, about the relationship that's beyond just the notion of sex. It's about people actually trying to help each other because they can see th- uh, him going down a road that he already went down, and there was a mess back when he did it. Uh, the other one from Breaking Glass, uh, Male Shorts International Volume One. So this is really, really uh, great. This is one, two, three, four, five short films, each one of them uh, different. All of them really, really beautiful. Just past noon on Tuesday, uh, two friends uh, go to the penthouse of a third friend who has passed away. They didn't know each other, but they both knew him very, very well. And they found that they find out a lot about the, uh, themselves and him and everything else as they go through uh, the penthouse of their passed away friend. Uh, you know, it's a very touching little movie there. Uh, the Mousetrap. This is an interesting one, too. This is about a gay man who cannot stop dreaming about this ridiculously beautiful woman. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And, 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 and it's just, and it's just oh, he, he's dreaming about being with her and having sex. But he's like, you, you he's, know, that, phob- that phobia anthology, one of those phobias <laughs> is a fear of dreams. <laughs> the fear of dreams. That would be, that would be perfect. Uh, I would, it's really an interesting sort of dynamic right there. Uh, there's one called The Storm, one called PD, and another one called Neptune. They're all perfectly lovely little films. Uh, so, you know, if, if, if you're into the subject matter, this is some neat stuff to explore because it, it comes at it from a slightly different direction uh, from usual. Uh, and then from uh, TLA releasing, we've got Grimsley. 
um, which is really a neat film. Now, so this is a uh, this is a, uh, about a guy named Norberto who breaks up with his boyfriend. Uh, boyfriend goes off to Iceland. Uh, he decides to go off to Iceland to try to find his boyfriend. This is really mostly a travelogue. He meets another guy, of course, who's going to take him all around Iceland to help him find his boyfriend. But he just sort of falls in love with that guy and falls in love with Iceland and forgets about his boyfriend. <laughs> Which, of course, is exactly what's supposed to happen. It's kind of neat. Uh, and this one here, um, Alberto. This is a lovely film for a whole lot of different reasons. For one thing, it's set in 1975 in Portugal. Uh, just after the revolution. Young man comes home uh, from Portugal after he's been away for several years in Brussels. Uh, the, the revolution in Portugal was one of those revolutions where the people, uh, the state, uh, took property, um, mostly from rich, well-to-do families. Right. And, 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 you know. yeah. So he goes back to his home, which has been taken by the state, his old family home, his big old family home. All kinds of people are living in this old family home, and he decides that he's going to live in his old family home anyway. Uh, and it's all about the people in the house. He meets a guy. It's a lovely, lovely movie. 1975, uh, post-revolutionary Portugal. This is just such a beautiful movie. And that's the thing that I, that I really liked about it the most. It's just an extraordinary film to watch. So anyway, from uh, some gay and lesbian and queer cinema, neat stuff. That's from TLA, Alberto. Uh, quick run through on some of the TV that we've got this week. Uh, Disney's Gravity Falls, the complete series, is now out in a Blu-ray collector's edition, all 40 episodes. If you ever saw this show, this is actually a really, really fun show. Uh, it's, it, uh, it skews certainly into a little bit into the, uh, Simpsons, um, American Dad, uh, all that Seth, what's his name? Yeah, stuff. the Seth MacFarlane, you know, uh, that, that it's a little bit in that. Uh, basically, about a couple of kids, these twins who go to the uh, who, who kind of fish out of water in this with their this crazy uncle of theirs in the town of uh, Gravity Falls in Oregon. And it's a little bit like an animated version of, I don't know, maybe Wait Till Your Father Gets Home combined with uh, Northern Exposure. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yes. But anyway, it's uh, it's a really cute show. It's very funny. It's got a great edge to it, but not too much of an edge. Adults and kids can enjoy it all together. And uh, it is out in a, in a really terrific Blu-ray set. Looks gorgeous. Nice slipcover. And uh, it has audio commentaries on every single episode. And they're terrific. Uh, I only listened to a few of them. Uh, but they're great. They're really, really great. Uh, you get some really terrific insight into the animation and the writing process and how the characters developed. It's really, really good, especially if you're, um, if you're interested in animation. Uh, it's very, very insightful and very, very educational. And then there's a look back uh, featurette and some, uh, some other kind of behind-the-scenes stuff and deleted scenes and, uh, and promos. And it's great. It's really, really terrific. And then from Kino Lorber, we have the first season of Modus, which is something they clearly snatched off the market from, uh, which otherwise would have been snatched up by MHZ, because MHZ gets all this Scandinavian uh, detective stuff, but they didn't get Modus. So this is a Swedish detective show about a psychologist who used to be an FBI profiler, and uh, she is, is all, this is the great thing, because you can't just be a great detective anymore. you got to be a detective with baggage. So either you've got some personal issue, like uh, you know you're you're obsessive compulsive, mm -hmm. or you've got you know you're you're an alcoholic or whatever the case is. In this case, very interesting. She has an autistic daughter, and that creates all kinds of really interesting family stuff. And in addition to having to you know sort of deal with her with her daughter's issues, 
Uh, now there, are the, there seems to be like maybe a serial killer who's on the loose in Stockholm. Mm-hmm. And so we now get into Girl with the Dragon Tattoo kind of stuff. You know, it gets very moody in that, in that way. It's really well done, really well directed, and, and beautifully photographed. And um, as this evolves, it's re- it becomes really fascinating psychologically and procedurally. So I love all so well of the really wonderful sort of Swedish, Danish, oh, Belgian so uh, television that we get now that you and I are old enough to remember oh, when we didn't sure. get any of that. that no. all, if we got foreign television, it was British television. Yep. Occasionally some Australian yep. television. Yep. But the, you, you know, the years and years and years worth of yeah. stuff that we don't get. We get it now, and I'll tell you, it's worth reading the subtitles. Oh, it's so worth it. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of it on Netflix, too, yeah. honestly. They have a lot of foreign stuff on Netflix. So uh, Modu, season one on Blu-ray from Kino Lore is absolutely terrific. Uh, season two of The Good Place with Ted Danson and Kristen Bell. Uh, you know, a show I, that, I, that I reluctantly must admit that I find very. Do, do you I, find I, it funny? I just, you know, I started watching that show and it was just so dumb, so dumb. The, see, the first season I thought was kind of treading water a little bit yeah. to sort of try to ease you into the concept because it's a bit of an odd concept, uh, you know. Um, but it's it's Ted Danson. It's Ted, and see, Ted it's, Danson's hilarious. He's he just is. hilarious. He's always hilarious. Uh, but he's he's still playing his Cheers character. He's, he's, he's playing he's Sam Malone. Same, he's still he's Sam been playing Sam Malone for 45 years. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, this is, and then Michael Schur was the one who kind of got behind this, you know, who did Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Parks and Rec and has done a lot of other great television. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of sort of a post-mortal comedy is, uh, is cute, is funny. I think the second season is getting closer to where I kind of want it to be, but um, it's still not there for me yet. Yeah. Ted Danson's there, Kristen Bell is there, but the rest of the show, the rest of the cast, the concept... I kind of feel like I want it to get a little more. Yeah, I don't know. Like, what's actually something. going on here? Yeah. And then the last one here is. I think uh, it would be great if it, all, if it turned out to be in an alien spaceship. <laughs> not dead at all. Uh, six DVDs, uh, twenty-four episodes of Rowan Martin's Laugh In, oh, the complete yeah. fifth season, fifth season, season five, uh, and uh, lots of great uh, guests on this thing. Uh, really fun, just a great flashback, great, uh, it just immerses you completely in the era, the zeitgeist of, uh, of the 60s and 70s at that moment in time, uh, really, really terrific. Uh, the, the, the guests on this season are phenomenal. I mean, yeah, you get the people you would expect, you know, Hugh Hefner and Bob Hope and Gene Hackman and, uh, and Carol O'Connor, they all show up. But then there are people that you don't expect. Tiny Tim. Yeah. Uh, uh, Joe Namath. Sugar Ray Robinson, uh, Liza Minnelli, Rita Hayworth. Oh, yeah. Charo. Pretty great. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it, it, it's really, if you live through this era in any way, even at the beginning, at the end, it's just great to see all these people showing up again. Uh, it really, really The great is. thing about that show so is, much fun. you know, it was a topical show. It spoke to the issues of the day. It, the issues of the day included, you know, a, a relatively controversial president during most of the run of that Very show. Very much so, yeah. Uh, a war during yeah. most of the run of that That's show. That's true. Uh, you know, I mean, so, you know, you, that then and now, not so much different, not yeah. so terribly different. Yeah. Uh, Want to knock off some new movies? Yeah, let's knock off a few, uh, few of the new movies. Uh, uh, let's dive into that. I'll go with this big, big, big movie. Amy Schumer's movie, I Feel Pretty. Which uh, I liked. You know, and it was a strange thing because it, you, I was a big fan of Shallow Hal. Remember Shallow mm-hmm. Hal? Sure. Going with Patrick, which is a thematically kind of you know, a it's person similar. who doesn't, yeah, you know. you're a, right. A sort of thing on there. I like Shallow Hal better. 
uh, than this. This one, this one was the a, Fairley Brothers did. The Fairley Brothers, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, it, but this is good. It's in the neighborhood. It was, Shallow Hal was a little bit more sophisticated about it. But this what well, this is is put, funny. In Shallow Hal, there they put uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in a giant exactly, fat suit. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And they made and they made uh, who was the guy who kept uh, falling in love Jack with Black. Jack Black. Yeah, he was the one who was engaged in the delusion. Yeah. Uh, as, as opposed to it being yeah. a self, self, so she always knew what she looked like and and wondered what was going on with him. Uh, and so when you make here, here, she's the one uh, who has a delusion about what she looks like, yep. and therefore she is able to behave like the woman whom she thinks sh- she is. Which is which is the fun part of Amy Schumer's performance is that she doesn't change. We all know Amy Schumer, but once she gets bonked on the head, and basically just so everybody knows, she's a she's a a kind of a low level work in the basement, uh, 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 works on the website yeah. for this large fashion uh, empire. And she just wants to be the receptionist in the main <laughs> office. That's all she wants, which are usually the really hot-looking people. And she gets a chance to apply for the job. And, it, yes, it's a pay cut, but she gets to be around the glamour and all this stuff. And, of course, it's uh, Michelle uh, yeah. Williams, who yeah. is the the daughter uh, that uh, of the the uh, uh, the guy that runs the well. She, Michelle Williams is the is the the the, the one who well I don't even I'm not going to get too it, much it, away. It, it, that's the friendship that sort of drives this. Is that Michelle Williams is the daughter, the heir to this thing, who has a really that she uses this this really high pitched voice that's just so squeaky. It's so funny. It's so hilarious. All of that is so funny in this movie, and the gags are funny as hell too. Yeah. The gags are really good. So anyway, she gets bonked on the head and then and looks at herself in the mirror and thinks that she suddenly has become like the crazy, most hot, sexy thing in the world. And because she owns it, everybody else buys into it. And that's the message that I really like, which is how you see yourself is is likely how others will see you. It's it's an interesting thing. There 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 were some women that had a an issue with this film, yeah. right? Uh, the issue being that when you know everything sort of straightens itself out and she you know, can actually see herself in all of this, that her mood uh, changes, yeah. her attitude, you know, yeah. and and they had like, wait a minute, what, you know, what's the message there? You know, yeah. I look in the mirror and I see me, and I look like I actually look, and I'm not happy anymore. Yeah, and I'm like, you know, I'm not going to talk about this anymore because <laughs> uh, I have a penis. Yeah, uh, and I don't, and I just don't know what the right thing. All I know is I thought it was funny. I, 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 you know, it's it's not a perfect film. It's uh, it's formulaic in certain very obvious ways, but I think it's a, it's a great message and uh, it's executed well. And I, 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 I just I did not realize that it had landed on that spot. Yeah, but some women pointed out to me that it had landed on that spot, and I'm like, yeah. I completely missed it. Uh, I, I thought I, that this movie was really a female empowerment movie. So, but you know, I don't know. Anyway, bonus features include deleted scenes and a gag reel, and uh, so you know, other stuff like that. But it's interesting, the interesting debate, if you ask me. Uh, you know, where do you land? And, and Michelle Williams in that voice, I just oh. slay me. Yeah, dude, that, 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 me. That, that pitch point. Uh, so, uh, Dwayne Johnson just had a movie to come out uh, where he played a guy with one leg where he jumps around skyscrapers. Yeah. <laughs> After he had that that previous movie uh, with the earthquake. Yeah. And and in between the two, he was in Rampage uh, with a giant silverback gorilla. Yeah, uh, where he jumped around buildings. Blah blah blah. And look, uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rag on Dwayne Johnson. He's made the same movie three times in a row. Well, more than that. Yeah, at least at least sometimes with a leg, sometimes without a leg, uh, sometimes with the gorilla, sometimes without. This one has the gorilla in it. This was a lot of fun. I'll say also, yeah. you know, Rampage is a lot of fun. It, there is not an original moment in the whole damn film. Dwayne Johnson has two movies that he makes now, and and he's learned. Let's remember, he's learned from Schwarzenegger, very yes, very wisely. Yes, yes, yes. He makes the big action movies. 
the true lies, the Terminator, yeah, whatever yeah, it is, yeah, where, yeah. where he is, you know, he is the man and the muscle and he's saving the world. And then he's making the comedies, the buddy comedies where you twins like, like like Schwarzenegger would do twins in Kindergarten Cop. And he does things like Baywatch and, and, uh, and did Jumanji did Jumanji yeah. and uh, and uh, Central Intelligence. Yeah. Uh, where very more often than not, he's making fun of his own image. And those two kind of feed each other. And uh, it's it's very smart, you know. There's a reason why he he is the he is the biggest star in the world now. Yeah, he is yeah. the highest paid star in the world. Yeah, him him and Kevin Johnson's right close behind him, which I think is yeah. really really funny. Yeah. Um, uh, it's interesting because you know for a while there he arced toward that dramatic thing. Yeah. Uh, like Vin D- Diesel did, you know, yeah. uh, Walking Tall. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I mean, he was still the man, but there was a yeah. lot of dramatic stuff going on. He said the the hell with all of that. Oh yeah, and the the one where he's uh, he's coaching the kids yeah. in the in the, uh, the 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 camp. Where yeah. He's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So you know, he's a, you know you know what I'm only gonna yeah. have these muscles for so long. Yeah. Uh, let's get some money. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, rampage, pretty neat. Um, all kinds of stuff on that one too. Yeah, that's uh, and that's 4K. That's a it's a good looking 4K. But all the stuff with CGI these days is just great on 4K. Good deal. Carves itself right out. The Leisure Seeker, Helen Mirren. And uh, Donald Sutherland, Helen Mirren and Donald Sutherland mm-hmm. on Sony Classics. Look, this was, um, oh, well, look, it, it's a sweet movie, but it's one of those geezer films. Yeah, I you know, know what you mean. I mean, it's a, it, it, an old couple for one last fling, yeah. and they go out in the, in the Winnebago, and, and their kids are chasing And he's a little goofy and doesn't and quite really know what's going on, and she's trying to keep him on track. And you just know that one of these geezers is not going to make it out of this movie alive. Yeah. And you don't know which one, but you just know. Uh, nevertheless, they are good performances. It is kind of funny. Helen Mirren is still on my list. She's still on my list. Special features in conversation with Helen Mirren and Donald Sutherland, the making of the Leisure Seekers. So it's nice on Sony Classics DVD. You got one over there? Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna give my big shout out for Isle of Dogs, the new Wes Anderson film. Yeah. Which, uh, you know. I for a minute when this came out, I thought, oh, that's gonna be uh, that's a, that's a shoe in for at least an Oscar nomination for animated film may even win it. Mm. I think The Incredibles too is probably gonna take it now. Yeah. I just don't see anything else take it. It's just too much fun. But um, I love Dogs is great, and I did not like the Fantastic Mr. Fox, which no. I know Mark loved. Uh, I, I forget how you felt about it. You, you know, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, see, it's it Ryan it, Woody, but not not nothing like that. Well, no. This is this is a smart film. That's this a, is a smart, really smart, smart, really, film. really sharp and funny film. The and and the idea behind it, the plot is the, the most impossible thing to explain. You know, there's this, there's the there's a there's a a, a crooked mayor, and then he's got this the, the the kid who's like his who's supposed to be his his heir apparent, whatnot, and then all the dogs that live on the island after Hiroshima. And it uh, somehow all this fits together in a way that I can't even explain the plot. Yeah. It just, but it's it's a kid and dogs on an island full of garbage. Yeah. And but it and is waste. a parable, you know. Uh, it, it is it, a parable because yeah. there are different tribes yeah. of dogs, yeah. right? Yeah. I, you know, yeah. And and, 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 and and they are very right. Re- it, it, it works in the same way that the original Godzilla kind of worked in what it was talking about, while it appeared to be a, a movie about a big old giant monster stepping on yeah. things in Tokyo. Uh, it was not a movie just about a monster stepping on things in Tokyo. It was about all kinds of and other this, things to that. The new and and a little bit of that is going on. in And this, this movie. is kind of a genre film too. I mean, it is not. It is not literally in the here and now it takes place it's kind of an alternate reality mm-hmm. kind of an alternate post-nuclear reality and there's you know some weird retro technology going on but it's a really sharp movie comes it's a beautiful blu-ray very nicely packaged comes with uh, movies anywhere digital code on it so you can add that to your uh, movies anywhere library and uh, i just think it's a really smart film and i hope people remember it at awards time 
Uh, and I've got Crystal here, which is a, a film directed by uh, and starring William H. Macy. And it was kind of a neat little movie that I rather enjoyed when this uh, popped out. Um, one of those sort of like all-star cast kind of things, too. Um, anyway, uh, he, uh, his, his character meets this uh, beautiful woman played, called Crystal, played by Rosario Dawson, who's an ex-addict uh, with a 16-year-old son. Uh, and he pretends to be an AA to try to <laughs> uh, yeah. to woo her, and that's a really sort of old school plot kind of thing. You know what I mean? I mean that, that that's almost like a screwball comedy kind of plot. But when you get the right person, right people, which include Kathy Baker and uh, 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 um, uh, uh, Nick Robinson and uh, and uh, and Tip and Ti, uh, I mean Tip Ti, the, the hip hop star Ti Harris is uh, uh, is his name. Uh, he is becoming quite the little actor. Um, these these hip hop guys, you know, who we they, know they from all the are. They all they, they, there's a skill in that that translates it beautifully in ways that it never used to translate for other recording industry stars. Yeah, I mean, make Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis yeah. Jr. But you know, yeah. it's certainly not hip hop guys, but it no. does. But uh, it, almost uh, almost to a one, every single hip hop star who has tried to transition. Into movies has succeeded at doing it mm -hmm. almost without without LL question. Cool J, Ludacris, uh, uh, you can just, all you can, of them. even the ones that Snoop. blew it up later. Snoop, 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 you Snoop know. was great in Starsky and Hutch playing you Huggy. You kidding me? He's fantastic. Eminem, Eminem in Eight Mile played yeah, himself, Eminem but still Mile. he's great. Yep, yep. Uh, Fifty Cent and uh, yeah. uh, uh, you get Richard Die Trying. You can get really. I mean, really, these guys can. I, I, you know what? I mean, it's Queen it's, Latifah. Let's not leave the women out. Oh, for crying out loud, Will Smith and Will Smith. Are we kidding? I mean, come on. That's how Will started. No, we go with that for a while. Uh, so that's on DVD. Not a lot of special features. William Macy uh, directs uh, that film. We could have talked about this one when we were talking about the gay films. Funny, there are two kinds of gay films. There are gay films with gay people in them, and then there are gay films in which there are actually no gay people. This is one of those. Disobedience, Rachel Weisz and uh, Rachel McAdams, Alessandro Nivola, in this neat little movie about uh, a, 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 a um, Hasidic woman, a Jewish woman, uh, and uh, another woman who had gone away from the community who comes back uh, to the community uh, from which she has been um, exiled and she gets involved uh, with a, a young woman there and they you know they fall in they, they, they fall in love and so you know it's a it's a movie about a, a rather obvious sort of subject that's been done before but these two actresses uh, Rachel McAdams and Rachel Weiss are very very good the this movie takes a very particular attitude toward the, the, the sort of idea of what goes on in these Hasidic communities you know uh, and it's not the nicest attitude, I would say, but it's the point of view uh, that the film has decided to take. So, yeah, I mean, you can see it right in the title, Disobedience. Uh, so, you know, interesting thing. Certified Fresh and Rotten Tomatoes. I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, this is the Blu-ray uh, and digital, but uh, not a whole lot on here. Wait. Nope, not nope. much. Not much, yeah. Uh, last two new movies. One is a, a thing from Screen Media. This is uh, straight to DVD, but it's worth checking out if you're if you're a big action fan, especially if you're a fan of uh, the whole kind of stunt WWE, uh, you know, uh, mixed martial arts, whatever you, whatever it is. If you if you kind of like movies that put those people in, uh, you will enjoy probably On the Ropes. On the Ropes is it's kind of a thin plot. It's a couple of a couple of brothers who inherit a crime empire from their dad, and uh, Thus ensues all of the usual crime empire machinations and battle for power, and it's very Shakespearean and uh, yet not very Shakespearean at the same time. Really, it's an excuse just to put a lot of really talented fighters and stunt people into one movie who are all represented by uh, apparently the same management company, which I think was a, a producer on this. So 
it's kind of a smart thing. Yeah. It's, it's action packed, and these people, you know, they're great stunt people. And they all, and they all have, uh, you know, fans. They all have fans. Yeah. You know, and these are these are hardcore stunt people who've done some really really big movies, and it's uh, it's you know, it's it's a good solid uh, straight to video action. It's not like you got to be able to act all that well when you're just playing some sort of a Guido, you know. Yeah. On the ropes is the movie, and then uh, we have Blumhouse's Truth or Dare. Now Blumhouse, of course, is is Jason Blum's production company that is so famous for having you know rent rejuvenated the. uh, the genre, the genre of the low-budget horror film, in really extraordinary ways. Anyway, uh, Truth or Dare. This is the unrated director's cut. Doesn't make much difference. Still same movie. Uh, this also comes with a uh, movies anywhere code and a few behind-the-scenes things, and not much by way of extras. But uh, the story is um, kind of typical of low-budget horror. You got a bunch of kids who get together in a single remote location, and uh, which is usually like an alleyway or an abandoned building or something like that, and it's the same thing here. And then some uh, otherworldly presence, some supernatural presence uh, intervenes and, and things go completely off the rails. Mm. Usually these kids are playing with a Ouija board yeah. or they're playing a record backwards or yeah. whatever it is, you know, something that in, or they open up a... Saying Candyman three times in the, in the mirror. Yeah, there you go, it's that stuff. And then, you know, next thing you know, something comes from, the, from beyond, from the other side. Or there's a mirror or, or some <laughs> artifact or they, you know, something from a pyramid, whatever. It's, it's always something. In this case, they're playing the game Truth or Dare. Uh, and suddenly, mm. if you tell a lie or if you don't take the dare, something will punish you. Yeah. Spooky. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fine. It's well done. Sometimes it's, I forget you, that, um, you know, new, new generations of filmgoers come yeah. along that are, you know, 10 and 12 yeah. and 20 and, and all of that. And for them, they come to those genre films for the first time. Yep. And 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 you know, stylistic considerations not not notwithstanding, you know, they're they're dipping into their you know sort of giallo esque whatever this that or the other thing. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, this is just all so terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's just awful and terrible and terrible. But you know, I had a moment. Yeah. You know, exactly. So I let them have their moment. All right, we're going to hit some docs here right now. Uh, this is a sensational documentary. Everybody should see this. Uh, from Kino Lorber is the Udo Kier narrated documentary, Hitler's Hollywood. Um, this is a sensational documentary uh, by the filmmaker, the German filmmaker, Rudiger Suchsland, um, who previously made the film From Caligari to Hitler, which touches on a lot of the same stuff. This is like a complimentary film to that, which is it, it gets into, uh, as a German filmmaker, he, he obviously knows the history of the movies, and uh, especially as the history of the movies pertain to Nazism in the 1930s and 40s on both sides of the Atlantic, and he is continuing that study. Udo Kier, of course, does, a, does you know, one of the great all-time voices. Did I ever tell you my Udo Kier story? I was with you when your Udo Kier story happened. On that movie? Yeah. yeah. Were you there that day? Uh, was, was I there that day? Because we were shooting down at Lacey Street. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, you know what? I might have been out, outside with that Jamaican cat smoking yeah. weed. <laughs> your sound guy? The sound guy? That's right. Yeah. The sound guy the, with, the, with the dreads. Yes, oh, my yes, gosh. I, I totally forgot I, about I that guy. he and I were outside. You should tell the story. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, uh, I'll get to that in just a moment. Anyway, the... Um, 
what this is, is, is Hitler's Hollywood looks at the films of the Third Reich the, and it asks, you know, what does this say about the Germany of the time? What does it say about its values, its industry, its people, the people who chose to work in the industry, the people who chose not to work mm-hmm. in that industry, uh, who may have felt like they had to work in the industry? All of that, all that stuff is... A, is I, I love the way that film sort of reveals these people who took the places of the people who did leave. So all yeah. the names that we know who immigrated yeah. either to England or all the way to yeah. Hollywood, they were replaced one for one Yes, they were. With hand-chosen folks who were, you know, still sort of significant figures. One of whom happens to have been Stanley Kubrick's uh, uh, father-in-law. Oh, really? Yeah. Kubrick's wife, her – no, her uncle. Sorry, his his uncle-in-law. So it was her uncle who made uh, Jew Seuss. Oh. But it – and when you – you know, when you – when you it, it's fascinating to hear her – Explain it, you know how he was, how naive he was, mm-hmm. thinking that he would be able to use uh, the the system to tell his stories. Well, the system used him. Yeah, you know, it was the naivete of of someone thinking that they could somehow find a place in a in a totalitarian regime, and it's really a, a, a tragic story. So it's Stanley Kubrick's wife's uncle who made that, mm. which is a fascinating history. But in any case, mm. in any case, uh, Hitler's Hollywood, great documentary, and then kind of on the same uh, vein. We have a trio of great docs from uh, MVD, uh, music video distributors, uh, to some of you, and uh, EPF Media. EPF Media released these three uh, documentaries, and they're all great. Uh, the Boxer of Auschwitz, which is the uh, the story of Victor Perez, and um, it's it'll it'll absolutely blow your mind. Uh, this is Victor Perez was the youngest world champion in the history of boxing. And he wound up uh, being deported to Auschwitz. And it's a story I had never heard of. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's uh, remarkable. It's just another one of those remarkable World War II stories you just can't ever imagine. Uh, and then there is Ascent of Evil, the story of Mein Kampf. This is also from EPF Media, um, which is all about the, 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 you know, the, 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 the manifesto, the book, the, the famous uh, sort of Bible of Nazism that Hitler wrote when he was uh, in prison yeah. in the 1920s. And uh, it is, uh, it's, it's a book that is, obviously for all kinds of reasons, really hard to find today. People don't want you reading it. Let me tell you something. Read it. Yeah. <laughs> it the book is its own worst enemy. Um, the, the, the more you mythologize it and mystify it, yeah. uh, and the more inaccessible it is, the, the stronger you make it. Mein Kampf was, was a mandatory reading uh, for me when I was in high school. It, it, which and, is a good thing. Yeah, it was fan, and, and, and it was thing. it was controversial that it was daylight, daylight like just like a vampire. But daylight it was interesting will roast because that thing like nothing. because it became controversial, and it was and it, 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 I'm, I don't know why I'm going off into this, but there was yeah. a Catholic church, and it was the Anti Defamation League that came to the defense of the school district. I went yeah. to school in St. Louis City Schools. Yeah. The Anti Defamation League came to the defense yep. of the school district and said, "No, yes, make sure they read the book because if the only people reading it are people." People who are inclined to agree with it, and if they read it in secret in an echo chamber and just reinforce themselves, yeah. there's no one in the culture to rebut it, yes. to argue against it, to ridicule it. Yeah, uh, directly with, by, by understanding it and being able to quote it, it too. That's it. So, so that's yeah. the importance of that. And then the last one here is Dogs of Democracy, uh, which is beautiful. Uh, this is also from uh, MVD Visual and from EPF Media. And this is about the uh, stray dogs in Athens, which apparently is a really – it's a huge thing. This is – you know, they're, they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's like it's, 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 a, it's a problem, but it's also kind of an, uh, an iconic thing about the city of Athens. 
And um, this is how this is all about how they are, you know, the, the, the pros and the cons of it and how they how, how difficult it is to deal with the stray dog problem in Athens, but also how it kind of represents something in the uh, in the Greek uh, the Greek uh, social it's like the cats, those cats that are all over. It's uh, what's the city in, in, in Pakistan where the cats similar. Are, yeah. You know, one similar of those, deal. Yes. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll knock off a couple here real quick. Uh, PBS documentaries because I happen to have seen uh, both of these and, and, and I was a particular fan of the Jazz Ambassadors uh, doc, uh, The Untold Story of America's Coolest Weapon in the Cold War. I always loved that tagline, uh, America's Coolest Weapon in the Cold War. Jazz Ambassadors, this is amazing. So, uh, you know, at the sort of height of the Cold War, um, we called upon um, uh, the most American thing that existed, uh, and, pr and very likely still the most American art form, jazz. Our great jazz musicians to travel the world as ambassadors. Uh, and so uh, uh, Louis Armstrong and Dizzy Gillespie and Duke Ellington uh, and uh, a whole group of other musicians, noted musicians, black and white and Latino, mixed race bands, traveled all over the wor world um, um, exporting uh, the notion of America. They were doing this, of course, while Jim Crow was still being practiced in the segregated South. And uh, this movie sort of co compares and contrasts and looks at that dynamic, uh, that, uh, that dichotomy between what these uh, wonderful black musicians were going around uh, the world saying about America in places like Egypt, uh, which is particularly interesting now, uh, in talking about freedom, uh, while there were places where they could not sleep, all over the United States of America. A very, very striking film uh, this, this is. Um, not to mention uh, the black and white photography and the stills and the uh, performances. Mm. Uh, just, you know, some of this stuff never before seen. Yep. So you have that going for it as well as the actual fame uh, from PBS. Uh, another PBS uh, doc, Going to War. Uh, an un look, it's strange that uh, me, uh, an old veteran, uh, 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 with a bullet in my left leg right now, uh, uh, um, don't like war movies. Generally speaking, I'm not a fan of war movies. Um, uh, there are war movies that I like. Yeah. I'm, I'm a Thin Red Line guy, uh, yeah. you know, Thin Red so Saving sure, Private Ryan, sure. you know, that, that, that whole thing. Um, and certainly I like war movies that have a sort of anti-war, uh, sure. pacifist sort of dynamic to them, yep. despite the fact of the war. Uh, what I do love about this PBS series is that this is, this is, this is, this is what this is. Mm -hmm. This is what this looks like. This is what it sounds like and feels like. And most importantly, this is who we're sending to do this now. Yeah. And it don't look like the folks we used to send to do this in the 40s. No. Or even the 50s, for that matter. Right. Uh, these people are coming from, a, from two very particular stratas of society. The lower class, those people who just don't mm -hmm. have the money to do anything else. And uh, the sons of our upper middle class society who go off to West Point yeah. and the Air Force Academy like I did and all that kind yeah. of stuff. You know, and, I, so you, and then that big, gigantic middle. Yeah, is not represented in this movie, no. in, in these movies at all. You know, you have these dedicated young, bright officers, and then homies from the hood, and 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 and, and homeboys yeah. from the from the ranch or the farm yeah. or whatever. You know, good old goobers. Uh, and I'm like, man, this is just this is the military was not that way when I went into the military. Yeah, there, there were all kinds of middle class people who were in the military. Yeah. Anyway, uh, PBS going to war. That's what I like about this movie. It shows you who are, who are actually sending uh, this documentary, who were actually sending off to these wars. Uh, this one is not from PBS. Uh, this one is uh, The Chinese Lives of Uli Sig. This is a really interesting film. This is more or less about the fellow 
who, who helped China change from the economic uh, system that it had under Mao, and it was starting to change a little bit under Mao, but it certainly started to change after Mao, that sort of tried to combine communism mm -hmm. with Western-style uh, economics, yep. economic policy. And, and, he, and he helped manage to pull that off. He's also one of the great collectors of Chinese art, uh, most of what is going to be going to the Hong Kong Museum. So uh, it's a really, really interesting figure here, the kind of person who has an impact on something in the world uh, that is probably one of the most impactful things of the last, I don't know, uh, hundred years, the economic transformation of China. Uh, so that, that title, when you and I were kids, Wade, when it said made in China, it literally meant junk. Yes. Trinkets and crap yeah. made in China. It was yep. funny if you had something made it in was. China. That's not true anymore. This it, was, it was not circuit boards. No. And, and, no. and, and, and appliances and, and yeah. everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Most of which has been desi designed by Americans, yeah. actually. Uh, but this guy is one of the reasons why that's not true anymore, yeah. which is an interesting thing to me. Uh, I got another one here I should have included with the other. This is the other Kino Lorber. Uh, this, this fell out of my, uh, my filing system here. So uh, this is the other Kino Lorber movie about uh, Nazi-era movies. Um, and this was uh, originally released by Zeitgeist, uh, now part of the Kino Lorber uh, library. Forbidden Films, The Hidden Legacy of Nazi Film. This is by Felix Muller, also a German filmmaker, who, as pertaining to what we were just talking about, uh, Felix Muller previously made a film about... Stanley Kubrick's wife's ah. uncle, uh, called Harlan, uh, In the Shadow of Jew Seuss, which is all about that film and about him as a filmmaker. Um, the, this is a great compliment to the other one because there's a little bit of overlap here. But Forbidden Films, The Hidden Legacy of Nazi Film, is very specifically uh, not about all the stuff, not about the entire movement at the time, but is very specifically about the three dozen some, uh, give or take, movies from the the propaganda faction of of all those movies, the blatant propaganda that are that are considered so incendiary and so inflammatory, they just want to keep them locked up, mm. much like uh, you know uh, Mein Kampf. Mm. So they they're afraid that these movies might get out and do what they did all over again, which is nonsense. And that's kind of the the thrust of the movie. This this goes and it it has a great discussion about them. And uh, where, you know, they can screen them in schools in Germany, for mm -hmm. example. They have to really contextualize them. And uh, it's really a, it's a, it's a fascinating look at uh, and dissection of propaganda at its most raw, but sometimes at its most obvious and even amateurish. Yeah. It's a really interesting you, movie. That word propaganda, which we, which we insinuate with a, 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 a negative meaning now. Yeah. Which, of course, it never had. No, not previously. Almost, almost everything is propaganda to one yeah. extent or another. True. And certainly the United States of America made propaganda films. We just talked about the Jazz Ambassadors. Tons. That, those were propaganda films. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, but, you know, there's a context in, when, in, in which we talk yeah. about them. Now, there are propaganda films uh, that well, are full of... When you win. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there yeah. you go. I don't, don't even have to finish yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, um, a Skin So Soft. Uh, uh, look, this is an interesting film. Um, also, about these bodybuilders, I think it's like these six guys. So, Mark and I, uh, let me just uh, preface this. Yeah. Uh, uh, we did, Mark and I did an audio commentary for one of his previous films. Oh, Denny, Denny, uh, how do you say his last name? Cote. Cote. So, we did, a, we did an audio commentary for one of his previous films, and it's, it's worth pointing out, he is a, he's a very, very slow French-Canadian documentarian, sometimes narrative filmmaker, sometimes a little bit of, of each where you can't really tell what's going on. 
uh, Denis Cote just basically sets the camera up and he lets life transpire in front of it. Yeah. And that's what a skin so soft is. is. And, and the thing of it is, is you, you look at it, you think about a film like uh, Pumping Iron, Schwarzenegger yeah. from 70, whatever it was. You know, And that film was about pumping iron. iron you yeah. Know, relatively speaking, these guys and what they did in these competitions. This is about everything else. This is about everything. You yeah. watch them do all that. Yeah. But this movie is not about that. No. This movie is inside these humans' existences. And, and the why of it all. And and I, I am still left, even as interesting as it is, I am still left with the why of it all because you watch it and it's such a mundane, grueling routine of, of eating food that's dis, that's disgusting yeah. and dull and tasteless and just working out and doing other things and, you know, checking, whatever. It just it just seems so, What to what point? It, it, be, it becomes, to me, it, be, it became a thing that's about the kind of human being that requires this sort of regimen. Because you know these guys are like they're soldiers or whatever yeah. they were. Regimen, regimen, regimen. And the regimen, the regimen becomes uh, what they are doing to their bodies. And the reason they're doing all these competitions, but that's not really what's going on. The competitions, they need these regimens. And I don't know, it's very interesting. Uh, uh, skin so soft. Uh, genetically modified children is from uh, those are my favorite kind of children. <laughs> it's from Cinema Libre, and uh, it is uh, you know Cinema Libre makes uh, progressive um, uh, activist cinema. Yeah, is the best way of putting it. Uh, and the, the the question that is being asked here, which uh, appears to be answered, even though this is not a film that seeks out the other side, does not seek to necessarily portray anything balanced. So you could argue that this is propaganda, but it makes a very persuasive case that Monsanto is, exerts so much pressure mm. on uh, poor Latin American countries and farmers to hit certain quotas and to deliver the goods that they have to use very aggressive herbicides and other chemicals, mm -hmm. which it appears wind up altering, not just creating birth defects and things like that, but alter altering the genetic code of the children in the area, mm. which is a horrifying thing. The, the, it's like the, these are Frankenstein children yeah, at a certain that, point. Because they're coming into direct contact with this stuff. Not just It's not about eating the food. No. No, no. This is about it's, them coming into contact. It's about with this stuff. playing in the fields and, and touching it and having it just, you know, become part of your, your lifestyle. It's a, it's a rather, you know, it's a rather terrifying case that they make. Mm. And uh, it's well worth watching Genetically Modified Children. Wow, 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 wow. And then we also have six films by Nicholas Geierhalter. Uh, this is from Icarus Films and the Kim Stim Library. Um, uh, Nicholas Geierhalter is a very, very famous but not widely known documentarian who uh, is basically known for – I don't want to put him in the Frederick Wiseman mold because he's not quite. But his, it's, it's a very stark uh, photographic style that sort of defines him. He's very – He's very, um, how would I say, austere and geometric in mm. the way that he shoots his movies. And uh, the, it, it, essentially his movies are slice-of-life movies, but they, they look at oftentimes controversial subjects and uh, try to find an aesthetic – oh, how would I put it? Um, he try, I, guess, I guess the best way is to say that he tries to find – uh, order and beauty in things that may not necessarily suggest order and beauty. And yeah. that creates a really interesting aesthetic contrast a lot of times. Uh, so these are six of his films. Um, and, you know, like uh, Chernobyl is the subject of one of these films and uh, something similar to what we just talked about with the genetically modified children, mm -hmm. you know, issues with food production is subject to another one, Our Daily Bread, which was very, very, very famous. Yeah. Um, there's also... Uh, 
Abendland, which I had never seen before, which is beautiful to look at. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, Elsewhere. I mean, these are good films. So, again, very stark. Not everybody's cup of tea as far as documentaries are concerned, but um, if you want to see beautifully, beautifully made films, um, definitely check this out. Six films by Nicholas Geierhalter. Deep insight into those particular issues there. Our Blood is Wine, a film by Emily Railsback. I love this movie. Um, so she goes out with this very famous sommelier, uh, Jeremy Quinn, uh, and to the Republic of Georgia. Uh, there is a deep, deep, deep wine-making culture. It goes back 8,000 years in the Republic of Georgia, but it, it was almost completely lost during the Soviet period uh, and, and ensuing wars right up through the 90s. Um, uh, and, uh, but uh, there were a few people, a few rural farmers uh, and, and vintners uh, who held on to some of these ancient sort of ideas about how to do this. And she goes and she finds these people. Uh, and it's really, really just absolutely extraordinary. Uh, th 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 there are people that have uh, vines uh, that go back several centuries. You know, little cuttings and clippings, which is like a big yeah. thing. You know, uh, the, so uh, and you know, we don't often think about wine from the Republic of Georgia True. or Georgian wine, but it's a deep, a deep culture. A lot, a lot of, b b not all wine has to come from uh, well, either from France and Northern Bordeaux California or Northern. Yeah, 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 that's it. So yeah, so it's one of those kind of things. Uh, so it's a very, very beautiful film. Also beautiful because it's shot in the rural uh, areas of of, of Georgia, which are beautiful, gorgeous, gorgeous, and lovely yeah. people too. Our blood is wine. Uh, Israeli filmmaker Amos Gitai, who is probably, he was the first major Israeli filmmaker to get international attention, uh, he has made a sequel documentary to his 1982 film Field Diary, which was, uh, I believe, the, if not the first, it was one of the first films to deal with the, uh, the documentaries to deal with the Palestinian and Israeli crisis. Mm. And he's made a follow-up to that called West of the Jordan River. And they really work together as films. If you've, if you've never seen uh, Field Diary, you need to. It's a really superb film. And he went back now, here we are, 30-some years, you know, 36 years later, and uh, revisited the, the situation. And what he finds, you would think, is going to be, you know, depressing and no hope and uh, just a horrible, horrible thing. And, and there is some of that in the, in the edges. But what he finds are people on both sides, Jews and Palestinians, uh, Israelis and Palestinians, I should say, mm -hmm. who are who are making the best of a bad situation and who are finding ways of solving it I as best as they can, dis in spite of the political situation. And um, it's encouraging, and it is hopeful, and it does say, you know, what eventually the people will do what the politicians can't or won't. Yeah, um, uh, extraordinary stuff. Uh, this is a very interesting documentary as well. Acorn in the Firestone. Acorn, the Association of Community Organizations. Organizations for Reform Now. Uh, my mother was a member of ACORN 40 years ago. Uh, 40 years ago, uh, and in the ensuing period, a ACORN was involved in all kinds of things, um, voter registration, community organizing, advocacy for low-rent housing, uh, for people with low incomes and moderate, in uh, moderate incomes. They did all kinds of things uh, that were you know, not, not, not necessarily urban, also often in rural communi communities as well. Um, and um, uh, and we're sort of tangentially connected to uh, birth control services or recommending people, all this kind of stuff. Well, back in 2009, um, um, some ACORN representatives were secretly recorded by conservative acti activists, I think that's fair to say, Hannah Giles and James O'Keefe, 
Oh, and, that's and that, that, that whole thing. That whole and they thing, had this yeah. footage, and you know, it's like this fake prostitute and pimp and all this kind of stuff. And I, honestly, I, I, I remember seeing that video, and I remember thinking, how could anyone, like, there's nothing about him that is a pimp. No. This is, this he was is so non-pimpish. This is a, a middle-class white guy that went and he, he watched Superfly. And, and he, he put on that hat. And he put on that hat <laughs> and that outfit. Which is now fifty years <gasps> out of date, and but he's a white guy yeah. who doesn't look like a pimp. No, like white pimps have a certain look. Yeah, like they usually look like heroin addicts. They or don't something. look. They don't look like. They, they don't, don't look, look like, like Ron O'Neill from 1972. No, they don't. Uh, and how he could walk into an office and actually pull that off, which is, is why I think that the acorn knucklehead fell for it because <laughs> I thought I, I, I for, this is just me talking now. I think he was thinking to himself, "This guy cannot possibly be a crazy. pimp because yeah. he because he's dressed like a pimp." Nevertheless, all of that went down, and it really really shook apart this organization. Uh, it all got uh, published on, uh, um, and, and whatever uh, that, that Breitbart site was yeah, yeah, yeah. back at the time. Sure. Anyway, this film sort of like um, looks at that entire situation, uh, all of the documentation of, of the situation, the recordings and everything was made, and just sort of lays out what happened. Uh, and I think that that is a wonderful thing. Very often these things pop up in the news, particularly nowadays. Or, you know, allegations yep. of fake news, this, that, yep. and the other thing. And we, we see the story. We see the five-minute piece on it maybe three or four times over the course of the run of the news item. And then it sort of drifts away. And when all of the details about it uh, come to bear, we never really gather them all together. And we're left thinking the thing that we knew the last time we heard the story. Uh, and I love it when uh, filmmakers go out and they gather everything that we know about it together, even you know, if, if there's some not some decisions to be made about it, and they make a movie that explains it all, that allows us all to get on the same page, at least with the facts of the event, even if we don't end up in the same page uh, in what we think it means. And that's what they've done here, and good work uh, for them. Acorn and the Firestorm. Uh, all right, we're gonna uh, we're gonna move on to classic movies here, uh, and I'm gonna hit you. I'm gonna jump first with a uh, a bunch of uh, uh, Arrow titles. We've got a two fr one from Arrow Academy, a foreign language film, and then we've got a couple from regular Arrow, um, which are terrific. Uh, as a cult film, Doom Asylum has such a great history. Doom Asylum is hilarious. Now it's gory, but it's gory in an '80s way from mm. the the '80s slasher thing. So this this comes in. Right around, sort of on the heels of Friday the 13th and the Halloween films and all that, late 80s, about 87 or so. And uh, as we're talking about before, movie about kids. Mm -hmm. Kids got to go find a place. Well, they're not playing a game. They're just looking for a place to party. Hey, man, that old abandoned <laughs> asylum is no one hanging out. Let's just, let's just go and just party at the old asylum. Yeah, man, let's party at the old asylum uh. where that crazy guy driven mad years earlier is just waiting for a bunch of dumb kids to party so he can start picking them off one by one in a really grisly way. Yeah. It's hilarious. And it's usually so it's punishment for having sex. Exactly. That's all it is. It's, just, it's a moral parable. Uh, so anyway, that's all this is. This is just one of those movies. But of all of those imitative movies, uh, Doom Asylum is really one of the all-time classics. Uh, it's hilarious. comes with so many extras, you can't believe it. It's like Criterion-level extras, um, especially a new, a new commentary with the screenwriter and a new audio commentary with um, The Hysteria Continues. That's a name, The Hysteria <laughs> Continues, uh, which I didn't listen to. But um, a lot of other stuff here is really, really good. And then um, The Case of the Scorpion's Tale is a very interesting Italian film from 1971, which is uh, 
it's it's technically part of the giallo uh, genre, mm. but there's more going on to it. Sergio Martino, who directed the film and is known as kind of a third tier giallo director, uh, made like Torso and you know other other stuff. Uh, this is extremely violent, but it's a really smart script, and it's smarter than you normally get with kind of exploitation films. So. Uh, it's worth checking out. It's uh, it, it it all deals with you know this. Uh, it's kind of a th- like a thrillery Hitchcockian story where there's a uh, the, where the, the, there's a there's a, a woman who's trying to collect on the life insurance policy. I don't want to give all, all this stuff away. Uh, where her husband has apparently died in this plane crash, and uh, the procedural events that follow are really, really interesting and very smart. And if you strip away all the giallo stuff, what you're left with is still a really smart movie. Yeah. So it, uh, it's really worth checking out. That's called uh, the, uh, the Case of the Scorpion's Tale by Sergio Martino. Also comes with tons and tons of extras. Really, really great stuff. T- terrific new transfer. And some interesting uh, featurette documentary material on the history of giallo films in particular is really good. Uh, shall I jump over to the to a few of these? Uh, yeah, yeah, hit those. Because uh, these are criteria. Oh, hold, hold on. I had, the, I had the one more. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I, one more, I, yeah. I, had the, I forgot the last of the Arrow, the uh, Arrow Academy title. Woman is the Future of Man, uh, along with Tale of Cinema. This is a double feature by uh, Korean director Hong Sang-soo. And uh, Hong Sang-soo is kind of getting to be a little bit more known here. He's kind of like a, the Korean Ozu in mm-hmm. some respects. Um, it's, it's all very finely observed uh, sociocultural stuff. And uh, these are really interesting films I had never seen before. Um, woman is the Future of Man is about a couple of, uh, a couple of guys who, who had an affair with the same woman and uh, which, who take that fact to a very disturbing level. I won't tell you what goes there. Um, and then uh, Tale of Cinema is a very interesting kind of... Uh, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Day for Night, the Truffaut film. Mm. It's, a, it's an interesting movie about making movies, uh, especially from a Korean standpoint. And uh, the lead performance by Lee Ki-woo, who plays this, uh, this guy who, who, you know... Um, well, I want to say it's like... Oh, I won't tell you anything else. It's a very, very... Dis- it takes a very interesting turn and it uh it's really kind of it's just it's so interesting really really good performances so it's a movie within a movie i'll tell you nothing else about it but you really got to see a tale of cinema and woman is the future of man two films by uh, uh hong sang su it's really good from arrow academy uh let's see i do have a few of the extraordinary criterion collection films here including um uh, bull durham 1988 ron shelton's film ron shelton of course known so great for for those old sort of sports oriented films even when they're not good say never, like cop never, or whatever he never, good. never quite equal. you know there's 10 cup love me some 10 cup uh i think it's ron and white boys can't jump which is yeah. you know you know yeah. that's you know yeah. it's funny i watched that the other day it doesn't work no. No, they're both too short. <laughs> uh, and, and, and But Rosie looks great in the movie. And then, of course, Bull Durham, 1988. Kevin Costner, Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins, young Tim Robbins. Uh, did the um, uh, uh, there, there, there was a release. Uh, I don't know what it was. Something I read. And I did, and I did like a, um, an interview with Ron and specifically talked about this movie. As it happens, this Criterion Collection release is approved by the director of Blu-ray. Uh, special edition is approved by Ron. 
Yeah. Uh, so they did one of those things with it. It's packed full as all Criterion collections. Hey, so this is the story of a, a, a baseball player, uh, Kevin Costner, a catcher. Yeah. Uh, probably uh, looking at the twilight of his career while he's watching young Tim Robbins uh, come into the uh, in, in, into this rookie league team. Probably looking at going to the big show sometime soon. They they both uh, have uh, this relationship uh, with Susan Sarandon. Now. This is what I wonder, though, about this 1988 film. Would this film work today in our... Mm. Now, she is a woman of agency in this film. You know what? It would still work, but people wouldn't want to admit it. They wouldn't want to admit it. (laughs) Because I watch this film. I love it. Yeah. But she's a woman of age. She's having an affair with with the young boy and the older guy. Both of them. They're they're her boy, but they're her boy toys. Yes. Uh, and uh, and you know it's it's not about so I don't know I think it would so I uh, uh, Bull Durham nineteen eighty eight an interesting question can you still watch that movie today uh, Sex Lies and Videotape man another one right I think this was the last time that a debut filmmaker a debut feature filmmaker won the Palm Door at the Cannes Film Festival yeah they uh, can't uh, even get in the competition anymore S- uh, Steven uh, Soderbergh Soderberg. although this film didn't win so I'm not mistaken Chameleon Street won that year. No, Sex, Lies, and Videotape won Best No, picture. what am I thinking? Sundance. Is You're what thinking Sundance. Yeah, yeah, that's what they yeah. won. And this Sex, Lies, Videotape won can. It yeah. won the top prize. It was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And it was quite an amazing thing. 1989, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Steven uh, Soderbergh uh, sort of starting. I mean, he had been directing music videos before that, but nevertheless, feature film. Um, uh, again, Criterion Collection, absolutely packed, full, this re- restored 4K digital transfer, audio commentary from Soderbergh. Uh, and Neil LeBute. Um, uh, Neil LeBute. When's the last time we saw a Neil LeBute film? Oh, he's just been doing plays and stuff. That's now, right, because that was always his thing anyway. Thing, uh, Chris, yeah. Yeah, went, to, went to school with him. Yeah. Um, um, uh, and new introduction here by Soderbergh. Uh, look, this is just really, really an extraordinary film. Uh, again, of the sort that I'm not sure you can make today. Um, uh, or I, I put it this way: There's nothing controversial in this film, but I'm not sure it would get made today because there's nothing controversial in this film, and maybe that's the reason why. Sexualized videotape, Criterion Collection, uh, and Dragon Inn. Oh, I love my Dragon Inn. A uh, King King Hugh, 1967. This is, this, um, is, this, is this is you know the the King man was he was just the the best King who. Was the John Ford of uh, martial arts films? A touch of Zen, Legend oh. of the Mountain, All of Kings. Uh, yeah, you oh, know. this is so good. Yeah, Dragon Inn, which was remade as Dragon Gate Inn in the nineties. But uh, this is this is ma- this is maybe my favorite King Who film. Uh, it really is so beautiful. It's just and the color. It's just fantastic. It's an absolutely beautiful movie. It's, yeah. it basically, it's about uh, it's about a, a king that uh, exiles uh, a family, and there are two children left. Yeah. He kills the family. Two children left, it's, and he sends these black arrow sort of assassins it, after the children. It, yeah, it's. I mean, it's a classic action film thing. You know, some the, the good guys are holed up, and the bad guys are, are closing in on them, kind of Alamo style, and they've got to uh, they got to unleash hell. Yeah, it's great stuff. Um, and let me hit a, a few keynote titles here. And then we will uh, close the show out. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Uh, has, that's been told so many different times. The one that most people know is the Johnny Whitaker version. Uh, you may not know that in 1938, Norman Tarog, uh, famous in later years for directing a lot of Jerry Lewis stuff and other great comedies, uh, Norman Tarog made a, uh, a version of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer for David O. Selznick, which uh, is quite good. I, you know, which one is better? I don't know. It depends on, on what you like. But uh, come on, it's Tarog and it's Selznick, and um, it's really, really, really great. Now, it was um, this was reissued in the 50s in a really badly cut version, 
I prefer the original 91-minute uh, version, but they include them both on this, mm. and, uh, and that's, that's fine. Great. They, res they did an HD restoration of this, and uh, Tommy Kelly is a terrific Tom Sawyer. He's different from Johnny Whitaker, but uh, no less impressive. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful telling of the uh, of the tale by uh, by any measure. Interestingly, slightly more sensitive than the later version. Much more sensitive. Yeah. Much yeah, more some sensitive. Some sort of racial dynamics. Oh yeah. Going on. Oh yeah. Uh, Billy Wilder's Irma La Douce with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine reteaming after the apartment. Uh, Irma La Douce is a uh, is a uh, was was a Broadway thing, and it's done in Broadway style. It's very you know. Irma is a hooker. Let's yeah. be honest. This yeah. is this is all about you know uh, turn of the century Parisian uh, prostitution and making it look fun and sweet and glamorous and everything else. Um, this has two audio commentaries on it. One with our uh, former Lafka colleague Joseph McBride, who was also in our documentary Schlock, uh, and the other one with uh, film historian Kat Ellinger. Both are really really good. Joe Joe is just a he's a scholar and a, and a gentleman. Um, and you know Jack Lemmon is basically he's a John. I, yeah. mean, I don't know how to tell you. Irma Irma's a, a hooker. Half of Billy Wilder. Wilder's films couldn't get made today. No, they couldn't. The apartment couldn't get made today. True. You, you know, all those executives with that girl and that guy. Oh, my gosh. Get the hell out of here. You can't do that. Uh, John Barrymore and Catherine Hepburn in Bill, A Bill of Divorcement. This is an early uh, pre-code uh, George Cooker movie, also for Selznick from 1932. Great melodrama. This is Catherine Hepburn's first film from 1932. And the idea is that John Barrymore, you know, uh, he's they were a couple, and uh, he went to to a mental asylum, lost his mind, and years later he, he he's he's broken out. He's he's got it. He's got his mind back, as if that ever happens. <laughs> but now she's going to marry somebody else. It's the old, you know, you had him and then you lost him scenario. So they made it a bunch of times. The Bill it's divorce, good right? melodrama. It's really good, solid melodrama. Is that the one with the trombo script? The Dalton trombo? No, 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 no. That's not. That's no, a different no, no, no. Right? This was scripted by. Uh, the, it's based on the play by Clemence Dane. Yeah, I think the, I think the one they did in 1940 was from both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then uh, I Walk Alone is a great old noir. Yes. Burt Lancaster and uh, Kirk Douglas. Byron Haskin directed this for Paramount. They did a sensational new 4K scan of this, transferred it to Blu-ray. It is so beautiful. Uh, Troy Howarth does the audio commentary. Basically, uh, you know, a couple of a couple of crooks. They, they they have to split up to not get to get away from the cops. One of them winds up in prison. The other one does well. When the dude in prison comes out years later, he wants his half of the loot. It's great stuff. We've Elizabeth seen that story. Scott, that we've blonde. seen that story so many times. But how great mm -hmm. is it? Burt Lancaster and, and Kirk Douglas are both so hard boiled, man. Yeah, they're so hard boiled. <gasps> you just don't get any better than that. And the blondes, the blondes, the oh, blondes oh are just gosh, ridiculous. The blondes. Kristen Miller. Yeah. And then uh, the maids with Glenda Jackson and Susanna York. This is again part of the American Film Theater uh, collection that we've been talking about. That's now coming out steadily on Blu-ray again. Back when uh, Ely Landau uh, decided to uh, to do all of his uh, his you know to take all these plays and transfer them into movies and and make a, a sophisticated corpus of uh, play adaptations of great stage plays. Uh, anyway, this is a this is a terrific film, one of the better American film theater films. Uh, but it's important to point out that this story has been told a lot. I can think of three films in the past twenty years. One of them French one of them English, one of them American, that told this exact story. Now, mm. if you don't know, this is a story of two sisters mm. who went to, it's a true story, two sisters who went to work in, uh, in the home of a, a, a Parisian socialite, and uh, things just went kind of weird, and the sisters wound up in this very bizarre, twisted, uh, incestuous lesbian relationship and ended up murdering the woman they worked for. Oh, yeah, so, after abusing her... 
greatly. It's it's a really creepy story. It really happened. It's one of the most famous murder stories in the history of uh, of France, and it's just eerie and creepy and bizarre. And Jean Genet wrote the original play, play of this story, which uh, they decided to adapt into a, a movie here with Glenda Jackson and Susanna York, both of whom are terrific in it, but this is by no means the best or the definitive telling of a story. It's just one of many. Mm. Uh, but again, it's part of the American film theater corpus, and uh, that it continues to be a very important collection of movies uh, that were all made in the 1970s, and uh, it's, it's, worth, uh, it's worth a look. But again, remember, this story's been told a lot. And the best thing about it, basically, uh, for me, is that it was shot by Douglas Slocum, yeah. the legendary British lenser, who, of course, is most famous to us for having done Raiders of the Lost Ark. And who died at, like, 98 years old. So that's it. We will see you guys next week.